0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College,
1: U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm J.P. Clark, an associate professor in the Basic Strategic Art Program and the editor-in-chief for War Room. If you browse the military history section of your favorite bookstore, and you will find plenty of studies of battles, campaigns, and wars. But there are far fewer looking at armies in peace and the vast majority of those take up the issue of what the military got right, or more often wrong, in preparing for the next war. We thus have plenty of studies of war and some pre-war periods, but very few that consciously look at what happens to militaries after war, books on the post-war period, and there are no books to my knowledge that take a comparative look at post-war periods over time. None that is until the publication this year of Real Soldiering, the U.S. Army in the Aftermath of War, 1815-1980, to published by the University Press of Kansas. To discuss Real Soldiering, which is just a great title, uh, is uh, Brian McAllister-Lynn, the Ralph R. Thomas Professor in Liberal Arts at Texas A&M University. He has won numerous awards and recognitions, but I will mention just two. First, he knows us well in Carlisle, having served as the Army War College Harold K. Johnson visiting professor, and the other is the Society for Military History Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize for lifetime achievement. More generally, there is nobody better fitted to take on this topic than Brian, who I regard as the preeminent historian of the U.S. Army as an institution. His works cover nearly every aspect of its history. Echo of Battle is an intellectual history of the Army across its entire existence. The Philippine War, which came out in 2000, was brilliantly timed to look at arguably the Army's most successful counterinsurgency. Elvis's Army is must-reading for anybody in the force development business, examining one of the Army's earlier periods of unprecedented change. And my personal favorite, Guardians of Empire, about the Army in the Pacific prior to World War II. And that short list doesn't even touch on his literally dozens of articles, chapters, and papers. So, Professor Lynn, thanks for joining us in the war room.
0: Well, geez, thanks a lot, JP. It's, it's always interesting to hear yourself introduced that way and to recognize you might have actually done something <laughs> well
1: it, it was a pleasure seeing the uh, the entire field within uh, last year's society of military history conference uh give you that nod with the the, the morrison prize which was which is well deserved and, and kind of like on that before we get into real soldiering i would really like to take advantage of you being here of somebody who has looked at the u.s army over your entire career you know, so let's just take a step back. What, what one? What has kept you interested, perhaps, in the U.S. Army over that whole time, or or what? What themes or what lessons have you kind of drawn from from studying the army from so many different perspectives? Well, I, th-
0: I think you know, it's it's when you get to be my age, you start reflecting on all this, and probably falsely, but I when I came here to the War College in 1999. I was really interested in counterinsurgency in the Pacific and and my ambition was to write a sort of follow-up to Guardians of Empire to do in the 50s and 60s about the US in the Pacific. But I really became fascinated with the Army as an institution and in part because it became intensely personal. And I think good historians have to have a sort of personal connection with their subject even if their subjects were dead for 400 years and and I got to meet and sort of be around day to day all these officers and to hear their stories and to they were pointing me in directions that they thought were interesting and I just I just never got out of that. I was sort of hooked from the beginning and I've since then I've been able to sort of refresh those contacts by coming back here and teaching at the Advanced Strategic Arts program and and so it's sort of something that I I just felt was almost like a calling
1: all right well and I I think that that will kind of dovetail nicely into what we're about ready to talk about in that there have been so many repeat cycles you know we we've you know discussed earlier on uh, some of you know, you know, your experience here, where the you know, the the folks come from the Pentagon and they say one thing, and then your students tell you, well, here's actually what's going on. And so to to dip into to real soldiering, uh, you examine each of these major, uh, you know, the decades after each of our major conflicts since the War of eighteen twelve what What cycles just you know do you keep on seeing and repeating throughout that whole process? And and, 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 and and how much of that did you see as you were here and you know in the late 90s?
0: Yeah, uh, that's one of the things that I think to try and explain the historical craft, if you're a, a researcher as opposed to a theorist, um, is to have to establish pretty strong parameters of what your study is going to be. And to essentially that means leaving out all sorts of things. Uh, so I was never really very interested in Washington and politics and legislation. I mean, I recognize there a lot of people are, but it really never interested me. So when I set out to do real soldiering, what I really wanted to talk about was the army that the students were talking about, the, the, the forces out in the field, their experience. And, and I deliberately – and I'm sure there's going to be a criticism. Well, he doesn't talk about – Congress. He doesn't talk about all these things. But one of the things I set out to get to your point is in these cycles is that the sort of idea of two five-year periods, that the first five years after a war, you see a great deal of legislation, sometimes major reforms. You think of John Calhoun. Think of Elihu Root. Uh, think of the National Defense Act in 1920 and so forth. And, and often, that's where the analysis ends. Okay, we passed this legislation. And then when the next war breaks out, you know why didn't it work? And I s- developed an idea that actually what you need to do is follow the next five years and see the impact of that on the field forces and to sort of recognize that you can pass legislation in 1902. It doesn't mean in 1907 those forces are going to be there. Um, and in fact, they're not usually. So you see similar patterns of, with the exception of Vietnam, a buildup of the forces. You see similar patterns of then a rapid reduction of the forces and a sort of hollowing out of the army. You see a similar pattern of essentially a hump. Uh, we call, and That's their term, a hump of officers commissioned during the war, rapidly expanding the officer corps. But then those people then have to not only learn the duties of peacetime and in many cases, they've given up their education to go to war. So you then have an education problem, and you have to sort of re-educate all those officers to actually be lieutenants instead of what they were in World War, you know, World War One or World War II or the Philippines, which is you know, squad leaders. And the problem with that is, you know, you see the same thing in the non-commissioned officer corps. Rapid, you know, you might make sergeant in three years in Vietnam, pretty quickly, and not just. E5, but E6 and so forth, those guys want to stay in. And often they're not the people you want to keep in. So there's, what I often, to to get back to your point, what real soldiering is actually often about is there's this sort of ideal army of organization and legislation and force structure. And then there's real army, which is people and the organizations that are not up to what they're supposed to be. Yeah, you can have the best doctrine in the world, but if it's built around a 200 person company and that company's only got 50, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and uh, uh well, a couple things there to, to to draw out, but you know, the the first one is it, it struck me and this is probably where the tie to Washington and and the mm-hmm. larger element, it how often the army had really high hopes that the war had validated what you know we you know, what the generals wanted after the war, and so kind of kind of like you know uh, army football in, in 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 darker times, you know there was the 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 hope of season, and then there was the hope of recriminations and disappointment, and so there was always these high hopes that finally we were going to get an army of you know. X right. thousand, X million, X divisions, whatever it was, to right. paint upon the time, and it it usually took about two or three years for the for the realization to dawn that oh wow this is going to be a lot harder than we thought. Is that, is that a correct characterization? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I think there's a belief and a, and a shock after the Civil War, certainly after World War One, certainly after World War Two, almost a sense of betrayal. We we've gone out and won this war, and how we rewarded? Essentially, the country just turns its back on us, walks away. Uh, what's the you know the legacy of the World War II army? You know, Beetle Bailey. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's 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 not it's not fair, and it's not right, and and it isn't. Okay, uh, it's it's sort of like the army works itself out of a job every time it wins a war.
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, doesn't make it any easier on the folks who're down, which uh, down at the battalion level. Which so then to draw on the other, you know, element from your earlier uh, statement, there's a, I think, a fairly lazy assumption that people who were in a war are proven capable and that they are everything that you know that there's nothing left to prove nothing left mm-hmm. to teach but you kind of hit earlier on that at least some of the you know the basic skills of of keeping an army trained and ready in peacetime they they may not have and and may not have the capability i'm i'm thinking particularly of like the civil war era where you actually had you know some people who were brought in who were illiterate yeah Uh, and so it wasn't even that they were just a, you know, kind of, you know, had some rough edges or anything like that. So how should we think about, uh, you know, the, the, the folks who have served because very rightly, I I know that the army hates, you know, sending pink slips to people Mm -hmm. who have literally risked everything, but. Sometimes, you know, and this is one of the major themes in the book is boy, it's it's really hard to integrate these people. What 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 are what are your, your thoughts or your observations on that?
0: Yeah uh I mean probably the most traumatic was the post-Vietnam purging of the officer corps. And I've spoken to people that were on the other end I don't know, it was on those purging committees, and they were traumatized by it too. Um and often they felt that you know, we're keeping this person with a degree and we're kicking out someone with a silver star. Or uh, certainly the aviator community because at that time it wasn't a branch. So they stuck with the infantry or the cavalry, the armor, and then these. well, you didn't go to armor school. You know, you've never led a company. No, I was flying a helicopter for you know three tours of duty in Vietnam. Well, we can't use you. Um, there's a pretty ruthless uh, Serb after the 1990s. Fortunately, Congress gave them so much money that they could actually buy a lot of these people out. But you really see it, and again, you have to remember that officers do most of the writing, but the complaints about the non-commissioned officer corps, uh, just after every war, you have people that were, and, and in many cases, the idea, well, these guys were proven under combat. That's actually not true. Most of them are spot promotions, you know, we have someone transfer out as an E5, well, Corporal Jones, you're not the E5. And it, it has nothing to do with combat leadership. It was a spot promotion. And so that in in some cases, if you jump up to sort of senior NCO rank in about three years or four years, you know you are making more and have better potential than you would in high back in the civilian world. And so I said this really in the 50s that the retention rates for cooks and drivers, which are people you could teach any draftee to do, were huge. The people that you wanted to keep, you know, electronics, were minuscule. And so, when you talk about retention and you talk about recruiting, you you run into that issue with the with the peacetime army. Well, you might have a retention rate of a you know 80 percent, but if you're retaining if 70 percent of the people you really don't want to retain that's, that's not a great
1: rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and this kind of gets uh, into, a, I mean, it's been a theme in a couple of your books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most, you, you know, directly for me is you was know, Elvis's army, mm-hmm. as you were talking about, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. And, and an army that has all of these new missile systems and all of this, you know, you truly do need very well-educated folks to do it, mm-hmm. uh, to man these systems, repair these systems, whatever it is. That that doesn't mean that just because the army needs them that they're going to come. You know, it's it's it's, it's not the field of dreams. Right. Uh, you know, you can build the force structure, you may not get the the, the requisite talent, and uh, but even more difficult in these post-war periods where. You know, there's – you know, you've hit it. You know, there's the emotional aspect of, you know, people who have given a lot. There's the – a little bit of the Army's bureaucracy <laughs> making it harder. Uh, and sometimes we, you know, we, we probably kick out talent that we don't need. Uh, I was having a discussion with a, a serving battalion commander. And uh, so he's in a, in a mechanized, you know, combined arms battalion. He has 107 strength, 107% strength right now, but he's about ready to have a massive exodus. And he says, in about you know, three or four months' time, I'm going to have two-thirds of what I'm authorized. And I'll be doing all these duties for you know, garrison support. And I'll be going through a modernization, which getting a lot of new you know, kit is, is pretty intensive. And he, he said, well, I'm going to focus on leader development because at least that's the one thing that I can control. So what 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 is your reaction to that? You know, based off of your your your, you know, look at the historical army. Is that a good approach? Yeah, and it's
0: it's a very I mean, first of all, I hope if he does read real soldiering, he recognizes, "Oh, I could be in the 1822 army." <laughs> yeah, be, you yeah. know, or the 1870 army that I am not alone. That, that this is, in fact, a common experience. And, and in a way, that's one of the reasons I wrote it was to sort of
1: say, hey, this is what it's like. You know? yeah. It might not be nice, but this is what it's like. Well, and also we should probably point out for our listeners that you have a article that appeared last year in parameters that uh talks about the recruiting crisis mm-hmm. and then back in december you actually wrote something uh for us at war room as well along with uh you know lieutenant colonel Brian donlin and uh and so both of those readers should check out uh, both of those articles uh because both kind of talk to this but you know really the parameters article really explored the issue as well yeah so as far as
0: the but his you know the their battalion commander's issue I, I, I'm going to back off on that and address it sort of differently because there is always going to be a choice in in a peacetime army between what he's got immediate readiness, okay, which is a, a transitory achievement, mm. okay. As you point out, he's ready now, but in three months he's not. Uh, do you assess that unit over a year or over two years? Because you'll see these highs and lows. What he's talking about is a strategic choice of leader development. He is choosing deliberately to invest in the army of both you know today, but really in the army of the future. And I think one of the problems that we, that we run into, certainly in post-war armies, is this issue of, well, they're not ready, and not whether they'll be ready when it really matters. And, and so readiness, I often am concerned about it because, because it's such a day-to-day priority and it, it drives everything at the cost of thinking where you're going to be in two or three years. You know, you can be ready to go to the NTC, okay, and win a two-week battle. But are you setting the conditions in your unit among your leaders for three years from now?
1: yeah well and this kind of gets into i think one of the the major contributions of the book and and you and and uh you know brian donlan spoke a little bit about this in your your article of this idea of future war itis in you know probably it'd be pretty easy for us to make well uh, i assume it might be easy for us to make those decisions about the future versus the present if we knew for certain Hey, we do have five years, we do have 10 years, whatever it is. And and one of the interesting chapters in the book, I think, is really, you know, the World War II to Korea, where we didn't have a generation between conflicts uh, and, you know, with just within five years, we were back at it. But. Uh, explain a little bit you know, what you mean by future war-itis and why it's such a mistake for historians or pundits or anybody who wants to learn lessons to just treat everything as a pre-war period.
0: Uh, well, that's, this is actually a knock on the historical, but it's also how history is then transformed to be a useful thing for the military, which is you know, history moves forward. You, you, People in 1920 don't know in 1942 the United States is going to be at war, okay? And they have to make decisions based on current realities and, and so forth. And if you told anyone in 1920, you're going to be fighting Germany and Japan in 1942, they might have said, Japan, yes, we'll accept that. But Germany, yeah, we've just defeated them. The problem with futuritis is that people then start in 1945. They work backwards to assess that, pre-war, that peacetime army as a pre-war army. Well, why didn't they do mechanized warfare? Why didn't they promote Patton immediately? Why doesn't Eisenhower do this? And, and so they know what happened, and that's the, the lessons of 1945. But then they apply that to Judge 1920. And I uh, always had that argument with uh, the you know no more task force smiths. Well, okay, we all know what happened in June 1950 to Task Force Smith. But if you told anyone in May 1950, from Douglas MacArthur down to that squad leader, they'd have laughed at you. We're going to get rolled over by North Korean tanks? You know, wh- why would we prepare for that? Because day to day, we are fully engaged in rebuilding Japan. That is our mission. Okay, And in fact, it's probably a lot more important than one skirmish in a much larger war.
1: Yeah, well, and the, the the problem of preparing for protracted war is, uh, is is a big one. You know, certainly one that we're facing right now, as everybody's watching. You know, Russia-Ukrainian war, everything that's going on. You certainly the the army before World War II was centered around expansion mm-hmm. you know everybody knew that they were going to be promoted two or three ranks and the war plans weren't really about okay you know is is this corps going to go left or right it was about how do we mobilize so one of the the the, the major discontinuities in u.s army history is a volunteer force to a draftee force to an back again to an all-volunteer force uh, which we've just passed the 50-year, you know, mark on this 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 latest uh, iteration of that. How do how do the post-war periods differ according to that, or or are they pretty much the same? You know, that whether it's a volunteer force, whether it's a drafty force, like we had after you know World War II.
0: Yeah, I think
1: you know the the big thing in the drafty
0: force after World War II is the nukes, because in some ways people are saying well we don't really need an army because the war is going to be won in a couple of days by our our nuclear strikes. So in some ways the army is trying to make a case for a protracted long war that will require national mobilization. And the air force is saying well we don't need to do that because we're going to take out the you know the Russians immediately. So so you have to sort of you know context the army is making the the case for long war and national mobilization. Which is ironic that after uh, Vietnam they make exactly the opposite case. We can do it without national mobilization because we're going to win the fight and win the first battle, and the war is going to be over in seventy-two hours.
1: Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the Vietnam because I think that this is probably you know throughout the book there's a, a number of different. You know, for lack of a better word, interventions into you know the the historiography, and so you're arguing with other historians. Put in layman's terms, but your take on what happened after Vietnam is, I think, probably one of the biggest areas where you really make us rethink our history as an army. So, what 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 happened there, in your opinion? Well, That's very flattering because I think the average reaction is going to be to throw the book across the room.
0: But yeah, but. It's, I mean, in part, you know, it's what I grew up on. This, this, um, this—I say it's mythology, but it's this sort of narrative about these great minds that that set the case. And, and again, it's a perfect case of future war-itis because people start at the Gulf War, and then they work backwards. Oh well, the Abrams tank was important. The Bradley was important. The mechanized warfare—they uh, work out. All, here are these great leaders, who came up in the 1970s under General Depew and TRADOC. And it doesn't hurt that TRADOC's written almost all the history on that. Um, you know, as TRADOC's took over the historical programs, it's incorporated TRADOC's version of events into almost all that narrative. And, you know, it's, it's at a point you start looking at that and saying, well, okay, it, it, first of all, it's a campaign of attrition. The four-day war was not the equivalent of fighting the Soviet Union, which is what that army was built for, uh, and only after so many months of uncontested air supremacy and bombing, which was certainly not what you would have run into if you'd gone into the Soviets. So all the you know, – it is as, – as a very cynical um, army officer once said, you know, we paid for the New York Yankees and then we went out and beat the Toledo Mudhens. Well, we should have beat the Toledo Mudhens. You know? It's like. I don't understand what the problem is. But, but there, it's a sort of a pure future war-itis argument that you start in 1991, Desert Storm, and then you work backwards and then trace what you think was decisive in Desert Storm and say, well, that's why it was caused. And in fact, what really got me interested was I was able to get into these inspection reports of these allegedly trained ready units and find out that much later than they're supposed to be, you know, they're just beginning to do this training revolution. They don't have the equipment. They everyone who's in Europe says, you know, we can fight them for twenty-four hours, and after that we're shot. The you know, all the things that are supposed to happen, start looking at it actually aren't there. And then you start looking at the continental units that are supposed to reinforce. And I mean that's that's really fun stuff. <laughs> if you're if you're a pessimist, you know, like, I think one of them had like a ninety-two percent turnover. One of those divisions, you know, that's that's not what we think of as the army of excellence. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and so most of the period that you're talking about is still within the having heard some of your other comments on this, and this is the late '70s. This is about the time of of Shai Meyer and, yeah. and his, his Hollow Army, and so I think this is probably a really important, you know, drawing together two of the the threads of this conversation is first, and, and correct me if if I can, I'm mischaracterizing this, but it's almost inevitable that the turmoil after a conflict. The army is just going to have a really hard time. No matter no matter which way you 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 decide to strike, you know the balance. Yeah. There's going to be a heck of a lot of turmoil, and it's probably going to take you a lot longer to bounce back from that than you think. Is that is that a, a correct uh, uh, summation there?
0: Yeah, win, lose, or draw. It's I think you can make a case. It's going to be at least a ten year period, and that's why it's so in some cases alarming for. When you read about people coming out of a war, like turn around and say, "Well, let's go fight someone else, um, because it's it's almost always a ten year recovery
1: period. And uh, is there any period that strikes you as being particularly good or particularly bad uh, as you've gone through the, the the different chapters, or is it really you know so much of you know the 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 you know the, the same cycle playing out again?
0: Well, again, you know, that, that's sort of a future-war-itis argument. That's uh, yeah. you know, so what I'm saying. This, good or bad because – only because of the standards of what happened later. Yeah. What I would say is much more important and I think what I would hope people get out of the book is that there are choices that are made. Do, for example, in the 1920s, because they thought they were going to have to mobilize the nation, they invested a lot in intellectual capital. I mean, it's the astounding thing about you know Ridgway, Collins Eisenhower, Bradley is how little time they spent with troops because they were busy learning how to mobilize the nation, how to control a division, all these things that that became really important and so that turned out only in hindsight, you know in, in, in with the benefit of hindsight to be a very very smart decision um, and In contrast, there's been other periods which have focused immediately on readiness and put their people in to be in sort of a lot of combat command, a lot of so forth. And when they got to fight the war they were trained for, like Desert Storm, they proved pretty good. What they proved less effective at is dealing with the post-war throwout and then when they got into a counterinsurgency campaign, then there was a great gnashing of teeth and saying, well, why aren't we prepared for this? So, again, with, only with hindsight. But I would have to say it's a strategic choice that gives you the most options. If you invest in your brains and not in your immediate readiness, you're probably better positioned for any, uh, you know, any contingency rather than preparing for one and that you hope is going to happen.
1: Well, certainly, that is a message that uh, at, at the Army War College, as we're sitting in the uh, the, the new Root Hall, which uh, um, you also take uh, Secretary Root to uh, to task a little bit as well, but we uh, we won't tell his his statue waiting outside. But that is probably as a good a place to uh, to end this conversation as any. Uh, and so thank you so much, Brian McAllister-Lynn, for sharing your thoughts on post-war armies. And thanks to all of you listeners for joining us. Uh, please send us your comments on this and all of our other programs. And please, if you have not already, uh, subscribed to a better piece so that you can receive all of our episodes, because if you don't, then podcast editor Ron Granary will be crossed with both of us, and we really, really don't want that to happen. Uh, and after you do uh, subscribe, please rate and review this podcast so that even more people can join in conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is complete, we look forward to welcoming you back in the future. Until then, from the War Room, I'm J.P. Clark.